Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Ensign Broderick, a singer-songwriter whose new album Blood Crush dropped earlier this month, and who collaborated with Guy Madden, Evan Johnson, and Galen Johnson on the short film Accidents, which is built around a track from his previous LP, Feast of Panthers. I saw Accidents at TIFF and was really struck by it, so I'm delighted to have been able to snag Ensign for this podcast. Ensign picked The Swimmer, but we came at it in sort of a roundabout way. We started off chatting about Accidents and Madden Cinema in general, and we wandered through a whole neighborhood of related cinema before we got to it, and probably wandered back out again. So if you're expecting a deeper examination of Frank and Eleanor Perry's 1968 adaptation of the John Cheevers short story, you know, the one where Burt Lancaster finds out you can't go home again, well, that's not what you're about to hear. What we did have, though, is a really fascinating conversation about musical aesthetics over the decades and how art touches us in unexpected ways, and also The Swimmer. I'm really happy to share it with you. This is someone else's movie, and a lot more. Some of the stuff I did on the previous record, because I always think in cinematic terms, it was really Douglas Sirk type stuff, and... Mm. and, which is also like I know I read about him and, and I knew his films I didn't know he was a big Douglas Sirk fan Guy Madden was you oh know? yeah so um, and so we talked about that and uh, the, but it all it all comes back I guess to also that David Lynch notion that there's always some type of uh, underbelly to whatever's going on you know yeah. which 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 in Douglas Sirk I guess is more implied it's more implied it's a more implied statement because I guess you couldn't show that type of stuff in the fit. Like you couldn't show Isabella Rossellini running down the street like naked, yeah. screaming. You, know. well, you can't even really show drug use in no, in, but, in Cirque's movies, but you can hint at them, and you you have this sort of crack despair thing that's always going on where people are just holding it together, and you never fully understand why. It's all of his movies are like all of Cirque's movies are about depression, but they're not because they couldn't be. The, right, but but, and, but it looks so. But the, the surface is so pretty. Yeah, so it was like yeah. the robin on the lawn in blue velvet, and which you know, I I, I when I saw the movie, I you kind of thought there's something going on, and then it, the devolution of the end of robin on the ledge and stuff like that. Yeah. But, so in, in Lynch is just so much more, I guess, obvious. But but anyway, so like I I I love that notion of melodrama and the music laid over top of of that prettiness you know mm-hmm. and stuff like that yeah and it's funny because guys films are so you know people have pulsating sores and things people are sexuality and, and, and desire and violence come out physically in his movies in a way that they don't in the Cirque films but there are there's a kinship absolutely there's this sort of weird melancholy and fragility oh for certain the melancholy that's why I mean that's even something like my Winnipeg where it's it's there's nothing obviously kind of like there's no one in a radiator no person in the radiator right. type thing it's still it's there kind of and the narrator's voice and stuff like that and and the the beauty of the snow he said well, well you know he said well, why do you want to work with me I said because I like how you make snow you know and he said the trick to making good snow is to, is to make it look really fake so and, and <laughs> 
and the you. snow and forbidden room with those scenes in the forest and stuff mm. like that that's just beautiful type stuff but I guess no one can make I mean maybe Todd Haynes does maybe can people still make a movie like Douglas Sirk where you don't actually where it doesn't where it doesn't devolve and it's just all surface and yeah. just it's all implied far from heaven kind of yeah. but even then they had uh, glimpses of explicit sex and, and um, language you know when Dennis Quaid spits out fuck because he can't say anything else that was supposed to be genuinely shocking but then it kind of works against the concept of the film it makes it much more theoretical than than immediate because you're watching a movie not deal with the things that it, or deal with the things that the movie's not supposed to deal with so it's a Douglas Sirk movie except there's a glimpse of, of uh, sex and there's profanity and all the things that Cirque couldn't show but because he couldn't show them he found ways to express them that were more interesting than expressing them so Far From Heaven I, I was one of the people who came out of that and went well that's not satisfying because it's reminding me that there are other versions of the story that are better for their restraint uh, and then he made Carol which kind of gets right. it like mm-hmm. Carol nails it by not being uh, precious about what it's hiding and, and having the characters themselves be repressed so you actually have to find your way through it with them but yeah Haynes can do it I, I think Lynch could probably do it if he wanted to to just okay, but, he, but his well, he would do it I guess but his fan base is waiting for like the other shoe to drop all the time yeah you know? like well, this is not screwed up enough we need it to be more screwed up so there has to be something bad has to happen obviously you know and, but uh, yeah like the end of the first Twin Peaks episodes in the original season where it was completely you know it was safe for television right up until the ideas mm-hmm. started to crack. Yeah, because it had to be right so yeah. but, I, mean, that, I mean for me musically I'm I don't have that type of restraint and discretion to not have a kitchen sink pastiche type approach to it, you know. So, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that irony, if that's the right term, is much better played out in film, and it's more dimensional, especially since music is a support of film as opposed to. And that's what I told Guy. I said, well, you know. He said, well, what do you want to do? Because he'd never done... He did, did a video for Sky from Sparkle Horse, mm. but it wasn't a film. It was like, it was like, you know, I have this music and I want want you to do visual representation of it. A video? No, not a video. I want you just to do Guy Madden. So I, don't, like, I don't need to make a video. Like, in my age, I shouldn't be making videos like, like you know, whatever. But And so he said, I can do, you do whatever you want just whatever and pick whatever so we'll extend on like 70 songs and he picked this one song that he liked and it was fortunate because the song had three different versions so there's three different versions of the song one's like a regular version like with some Disney-esque stuff in it and one's like a really um, glitch type version which is all deconstructed and then one's like a, a bluegrass version of it and the song structure is is not really later, but it is very heavily driven by Brahmsian lullabies and Schubert. It's very classically driven, and the idea to do that as a bluegrass song was really kind of my sense of trying to fuck with things, you know. But it's in there too, so. But yeah. uh, the music was there as a support for the film. And I, I said, I don't need to be in the video, I don't need to be in the movie, I don't need. You know, you take the music and you chop it up whatever way you want. <clears throat> and if you see 
there's elements in in uh, in the Forbidden Room where they've taken classical music and they a Brahms for symphony and they overlaid it four times and, and of course I said so why'd you do that he said we had to do that for uh, copyright reasons and I said oh, come on stop it you know and then Galen Levin said no we got copyright for that guy but his like that's his first answer yeah so sure. we just we overlaid you know Brahms things so people wouldn't get copyright trial but it's beautiful really mm-hmm. you know and that type of of use of music I th- was really really interesting to me and I felt I feel confident enough in what I do myself that they could take what I had and chop it up in a million pieces, which they didn't do, but they did use different elements of it, which was great. And they managed to work in all three versions of it. So it's, uh, I, to me, being, having my name attached to Guy Madden and those two guys, Galen, Evan and Galen too, at this point, is something I'll have forever, you know? It's like, it's not like making some video which is temporary or you know ephemeral this is like this lasts forever as a piece of his art you know and having my music attached to it is probably oh, so far as the pinnacle of what I've ever done so mm-hmm. I, I you know I'm really so happy about how it turned out and I love and I, and I love that it's it's relatively um, it, I mean it's 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 discreet it's not it's it's just there you know and if you look for the art and the artistic elements of it they're there as well and things like the red the references are there like the red balloon and stuff like that they're all the stuff is there you know mm-hmm. but it's not like in your face which is why i think it bears repeat feelings you know so yeah what's well, i've been kind of looking at it as a freestanding collaboration i mean it, it's not quite theirs it's not quite yours it's a synthesis but it's yeah, also yeah for sure absolutely yeah that's and that's how it should be seen and you know because he's guy mad and i'm just me now <laughs> you know that's that it's always going to be a guy madden thing and people wouldn't i went when i played in berlin i went with them and people were confused by the notion that um we took a piece of music and they made a film to a piece of music but the film but it's not a video it's just a piece of music that mm-hmm. was used to support the film and they spent a lot of time explaining to people that was the notion behind it, and uh, uh, they, they, the people just couldn't, people just couldn't get it, and 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 eventually they did, I think, in in, in trying to explain it to people, but still it's seen as a soundtrack to his his film, and uh, I'm fine with that too. But I, I it is. It's, it didn't work. It doesn't work like that. The way soundtracks work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You look at the film and see this music doesn't really work like that. You know, it, it's a song that obviously was chopped up to use for this movie. So. Yeah, which I wasn't aware of when I saw it. So it's, I simply accepted it as mm-hmm. a piece, as a single thing, which works. I mean, it does work as score. Yeah, you know, I asked someone there who was who thought it came up. I said, and and do you. And they really like the music. I said, "You understand, it's a song, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a score so much." And I said, "Do you remember? Does there any continuity? Or the film has this amazing continuity because it's all the same shot, you know?" Yeah. So, does the music still have continuity to you as a song? And they said, "Yeah, sure. I understand the song. I saw the movie." She, I said, "How many times did you see the film?" She had seen it three or four times, you know, and uh, she understood it as a song. And I thought that was really good. That was really important to me. That it just didn't become this disjointed piece of random music you know so yeah no it's it's certainly not that and it's i mean it, it does it defies i've been trying to figure out how to discuss it and because it defies as, as a as a work of, of cinema it, it's the reverse of the usual procedure because we all mm-hmm. assume this, the music is written afterwards or the images are written to the song but neither of those things is true 
it simply exists. It's like a meteor hit another meteor and, and created the yeah, thing. Yeah, and that's good because it's like, it's. They did cut some on the film to the music. That's why those guys are. That's why Evan. Because Galen does music. That's why they're so great because they use music for cues. Mm-hmm. And so they. The, the, I said there's nothing sacrosanct about the song. You cut it the way you want for your movie. Right. And they did do that. And that's why it seems like a soundtrack because certain parts of the music cue visual elements. And I guess we're attuned when we're watching something to the visual element is the most important and the sound is the kind of bolster to it you yeah know, so i mean that's what we're trained to to watch mm-hmm. like we're not trained to listen to movies we're trained to watch them right exactly um to the point where uh i just saw something uh this morning by the time this is out it will already have been released so i can talk about it um beautiful boy um which is felix grand I'm going to get his name or I'll mispronounce his name I'm sure uh, Felix von Groningen's film about with Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet as a father and son dealing with addiction and it's so this is the director who made The Broken Circle Breakdown which is this remarkable film that uses bluegrass effectively uh, to bring together this couple uh, in Germany who have no connection to American roots music but they love it and it, it gives them their bond and it gets them through sort of gets them through the, the death of a child and, and this this horrible experience for the two of them and it uses music incredibly well and it's really powerful and then this film is needle drop after needle drop and they're just so incredibly grating and, and cliche I mean, Dean Martin sings Sunrise Sunset while Steve Carell looks sad about his kid and he's just come on guys <laughs> you don't trust the audience to feel so this is what you do and the elements of the film would actually be stronger if there was no music if we were left alone with those characters but something like accidents where the music is sort of arguing with your experience of the image I find that really fascinating because it's something that you can yeah as you say it's discreet you can listen to it separately and have a different experience where you can try to follow it through visually and use the music as a, a guide track, essentially. I have these, these th- I don't want to, like, be negative. Like, I have these conversations with people about Christopher Nolan films, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, I like Christopher Nolan films. I'd like them more if the music was less bombastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the obvious way of talking about Hans Zimmer. It's just too over... It's like, if... That's why I like Angela Battle Battleman with uh, with David Lynch, sure. or or you know the scene in uh, Dress to Kill. Like Dress to Kill, is some of the best use of music because it's it's so calm and it's so violent, mm-hmm. and it's that like not having to do the psycho type thing when she's being when she's being killed. It's like this beautiful type of yeah, soothing it's... music. You know, it's like that is the strangest feeling was so that creates a strange feeling within an audience and and uh, I I just you know I, I I grew up when when I guess there was post John Williams you know or sure. pre pre John Williams yeah. you know so you know music like the the using Mahler and Death and Venice and stuff like that that's the stuff that really impacted me when I was a kid because 
appears that, I mean, it's a European art film and stuff like that, but it is, it could be quite melodramatic because he's dying on the beach and all that, but it's like this beautiful kind of Mahler kind of relaxing thing with a really seriously sad situation, you know, and, and uh, it's not this hammering in your head of, of overt, you know, over the top great music. I'm not, I'm not talking about, I mean, it has its place for like Fast and Furious and all that type of stuff, but, yeah. but for, I think it's it's so important when when you're trying to create something beautiful that everyone's kind of on the same page, you know? I'm not saying that white is beautiful. I was just thinking, I think some of Christopher Nolan's imagery, like Inception, those some of those things are quite beautiful, and I wanted to see them, the, the Paris folding in each other. Yeah. I don't want to see it with, like, this all this shrine in the back of my head, like someone's having their heads sawed off, you know, by a synthesizer, you know? I know... I know it's got its place and stuff like that, but it just... I think with with Nolan specifically, he has... He's turned into a filmmaker who's, who's like a... He's a sprinter who does marathons where everything has to be racing all the time. The music is agitation. The the three Batman films have this kind of constant dun 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 thing going on where if your heart's not beating fast enough for this two and a half hour film, the music will get you there. It, it's... It, it helps because when the film ends, it climaxes. All of his movies just sort of slam shut since Memento. But Memento was the one that did it without music, and Memento is it's more effective for it. It's the most subtle, you know? It's just like, if you look at the prestige versus the, um, the, the, the Illusionist, yeah. which are basically, to me, not the same movie, but it's the same time. They were Yeah, they were released like weeks apart. So the Illusionist music, which is... Which is Philip Glass is like arpeggio. It's still pre- preferable to me than the Prestige thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the movie, the illusion is preferable as a movie in general because I like how it looks and but the story's the same. It's just I think you can do less, but I guess people have this type of predisposed notion. I guess making those types of big budget Hollywood films that you just have to have that, that agitation, yeah. you know, always, you know, and create anxiety in the audience I, there's more anxiety watching Dress to Kill and G. Dixon being murdered to like this gentle beautiful music than anything else to me as a kid and I remember it you know mm-hmm. so, well it's the stuff that you're just the right age for too you were there to receive it yeah. so but, it's powerfully you know, does that to the the scene in in Body Double where the that there's got that beautiful kind of Italian lady singing oh, this yeah. synthesizing music well, and when the guy's watching her like through the window and stuff like that and stuff like that, and then the, and the, and uh, it's true. I haven't seen Body Double in like thirty years, but I remember that. Yeah, good. so the, it's that got that beautiful type of Italian type music coming, and I think there's when when the guy comes in, he's gonna kill her. The music gets more agitated, but De Palma uses music really in a different way, I think, than other directors do. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like he blew out all the manipulation with Carrie when he stole the, the strings from mm-hmm. Psycho and then just realized, oh, there's another way to do it. So the Fury has a sort of a lush score, too, if I remember correctly. That's what I, I just I just think it's such that type of... So it's the counterpoint. Yeah, So, but it's also like what I like. The It's the use of counterpoint juxtaposition pastiche, you know, and I try to do that in my own stuff. Um, so the song that Emily sent you from the record starts out kind of nice and then it 
like as permeate devolves you know not the music not the music the music stays constant mm-hmm. but the lyrics devolve as the story happens but there's no narrative it's just kind of pastiche and things that get put against each other which aren't necessarily compatible which great you know mm-hmm. so so to me that's uh, that's cinematic in, in my head I don't know how you would make a film of it and that's why I um, I I would I, I would never be able to say oh I have the storyboard for a film I just don't I don't think like like a filmmaker um, I think like a filmmaker that would just puts up random images basically you know <laughs> so a collage artist yeah like a collage yeah. yeah would you would you work with a, a filmmaker as a like an active collaborator rather than oh yeah sure. pieces yeah and I've, I've did commercials in the 80s and stuff like that mm-hmm. like 60 second commercials and stuff. so you know I know how that works and stuff like that um, um, but I think that I might be susceptible to having the music start serving the film too much mm-hmm. as opposed to um, ha- like being able to have the music have a some type of a insinuation, you know, the sense of insinuation in in any type of art, I think, is way better. It's just less. It makes you think more, and it makes you leaves room for your own interpretation, as opposed to having someone hit you over the head with what they're doing and stuff like that. And I mean, I'm I'm a huge Wagner fan too, but but. Um, even with in some of Wagner's music, there's still room for interpretation. There's certainly room for interpretation in some of his stupid lyrics, but but um, I mean, yeah, I know that people think that Wagner was the predecessor to John Williams in a lot of senses. He was, and a lot of type of you know the the Ring is like you know the Star Wars of the you know late 1800s. So. Yeah, I suppose, and the planets too. Right, Holst is part of that. Yeah. Um, it's just the harvesting that went on to create something that was a modern myth in a weird way. But I mean, I, I, I struggle. I struggle with Wagner because of his politics, and they're not his politics. They're, I mean, they are his politics. There's, there's a lot of apologists that say, "Oh, they're not really his politics." They are they are his politics? Yeah, and, and you can you can say it was the politics of the moment only so far, I think, and then it's just like. The embrace of it is yeah he embraced it and there was you know he Schopenhauer there's the whole line of you know it's not just him it's Schopenhauer and that his mm-hmm. his thinking came from Schopenhauer or from Born from the 1830s so, and, and you know it comes from it's, it's very similar in some senses to how people see immigration in Europe right now it's like how can you possibly be German because you don't have German blood in you and understand what's being like German and stuff like that that that's the same thing with Jews didn't have you know their own country right so Jews can't write music that has inspired by a love and a patriotism for country because they never have their own country right so it's not that Jews write bad music Jews write good music except it's not it has no legitimacy because there's no reality to it the reality being only if you have a country a sense of country like a german might have or a french person might have can you write real german music right or an american now right i mean that's the whole that weird schism in country music where some of it is embraced by everyone and some of it's designed not to be yeah i know it's but it's it's just that type of 
it comes down to I know it when I see it. Xenophobia. Yeah, xenophobia. Right, exactly. You know, it's it's just it's it's just it, the argument works because you want the argument to work, yeah. not that because there's any reality to it. You know, so. Mm-hmm. It's that because I say so authoritarianism that's like I recognize my German ear hears this music and and validates it. But if you're not German enough or you're you know, like there's no such thing as too patriotic for these things, which is why the music eventually just becomes drum hammering, banging martial music. So by the end when he wrote something like Parsifal, which he's trying to be really restrained. It's like it's you know, everyone gets religion at the end of the day. It's like, you know, you can say, I'm an atheist, you can say, oh, my father, it's like, you know, just like, at the end of the day, you know, it's like, why take a chance? You know, when you're, and when you're 80 years old, whatever Wagner was like, you know, 70 years old, it's like, listen, maybe it's time to embrace religion again, because you never know what's going to happen. Mm. So, um, so in Parsifal, it's very restrained and stuff like that. But at the end, he just becomes Wagner again and becomes totally chromatic and totally over the top and totally ridiculous. And, you know, that... Chromaticism is, 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 you know, it's a very Jewish sound because of the basis in the music, the Eastern European influences in the music and chromaticism. Is, yeah, I don't know nearly enough about this. It's, 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 well, you know, the Bach is very diatonic. It's very kind of understandable. Your brain understands it at mathematics, really, because it's how you're predisposed to understand Western music. And what was weird about Wagner and when he switched over to write Tristan is Sold, which was like the big deal change of music in the world, was that it wasn't rooted in any type of diatonic key signature, which is like just he wrote it like freeform jazz and stuff like that. So but a lot of it a lot of that music was influenced, I think, by the music he heard and, and you know, he was you know, a big fan of Mendelssohn, and Mendelssohn, even though he converted to Christianity, was a Jew, you know, like, so there's these influences in his music which are quite, to me, not so German, you know, that he would say are really German, but people like Mahler could do it, people like Schoenberg could do it, all these guys could do it, and I think that they did it as an imitation of Wagner, but the, the, Comparative to Wagner at that time would have been Brahms. I mean, they were like, they were anti each other. You know, they both were inspired by Beethoven, but Wagner, like, like the Donald Trump of music, saying I'm better than Beethoven, right. and 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 Brahms is going, well, I learned everything from Beethoven. I'm trying to honor his legacy. You know, so mm. it's uh, it's just it's a question of not even discipline, but just the personal consideration a perspective on what constitutes um fealty maybe you know, like if you honor something so much that it becomes your own and you stop seeing what you're honoring I, I i truly believe john williams thinks the star wars score is original and it is now but it's built up of pieces the same way the movie is built up of pieces of uh, you know the hidden fortress and and westerns and world war ii dogfight movies it's just they, those those things together created something that is original, but is so derivative it becomes its own thing. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's hard to to argue with success. You know, it's like, um, you know, I like you got to put food on the table. You mm-hmm. know, and 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 
John Williams has to write a certain way, and Steven Spielberg wanted him to write a certain way, and I guess George Lucas wanted him to write a certain way, and that's what he writes. It's just, to and millions of people love it. So yeah. it's not for me to argue with it. It's not. I mean, the Boston Pops plays at a freestand. It's freestanding music. It's 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 not my thing, you know. And, but you know, Mozart wasn't my thing either. It was just too kind of. It was just too too predictable, you know. Yeah. So. Is it predictable because it's the progressions? Is it? The, yeah, the progressions the, are predictable. The things that are supposed to be. You're pleasing. hardwired. You, you're born to understand that type of progression. That's why. That's why Tristan and Soul was so weird because people couldn't. Christian and Soul is, is four hours of of foreplay, theoretically, because they don't resolve the chords ever. You're always waiting for the chord to resolve. It resolves at the end of the opera. Right. Um, but up until that, and that's why people were like, were you know, apoplectic because they didn't understand. Because you're waiting for this resolution to happen. It still happens when you see it for that long. It's like you're waiting for this resolution to happen, which you're hardwired to want. You know, that that notion is is what Haydn and Handel and Bach and Mozart is based on the resolution, and it's pleasing. People mm-hmm. like that resolution. It makes them feel. A sense of completion inside, you know, and that's my music is the antithesis of that. Yeah. Or if I do it, it's done with a sense of well, I'm gonna fuck with you, you know, type thing. You know? Right. Which is, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, everyone has their musical jokes, whether it's Mozart or anybody. But I think that um, you know, and and the good thing about the pop, the hard thing about writing, not hard thing, but the challenging thing about writing pop songs is that you have a certain amount of time where you got to get your message across and you know whether that's three and a half minutes or four minutes or five minutes you really have to kind of you're going to be part of the art form you have to kind of abide by the art form and you know if you think about guys like Irving Berlin or Cole Porter they could do it in three minutes four minutes they get an entire complex theory across in three or four minutes and you walk out whistling it it's like that's a big deal that's a really hard thing to do it's yeah. such a hard thing to do you know I got you under my skin songs of that nature which everybody loves but it's also quite complex in how it's written it's quite complex in the in the the subject matter and stuff like that it's it's that's really the challenge to do that so for me it's it's um, trying to refine my stuff to the point where I can do that but still be true to what I want to do so in in the song in Drowning Pool Eyes which Emily sent you it's like it's basically a country type of you know vibe but maybe with a twist to it um, mm-hmm. and it's just basically piano and a steel guitar there's me playing bass there's no other really instrumentation in it so but it's got this kind of ethereal nature to it. Yeah, but it sounds like regret. I mean, that's the vibe that I took away from it. Yeah, it, it's it's it. Well, obviously, the first the first stanza kind of starts like a country song and like a country gentleman type thing. And when I think about it, I think visually too. So you know that notion of bluegrass or country music being filled with regret or filled with sadness mm-hmm. or filled with sorrow, you know. You know what's the famous song, "Man of Constant Sorrow"? Those, yeah. those really amazing bluegrass songs. You know, and and you know, I think you know, brother, where art there is kind of like has a kind of a distillation of that, but it goes way before that. You know, and the notion of the lonely cowboy and stuff like, mm-hmm. you know, there's 
there's this the guy that painted the cover of Diamond Dogs and uh, It's Only Rock and Roll in the mid 70s he's a Dutch artist called Guy Peelart he's dead now but he did this uh, book called Rock and Roll Dreams which is a really beautiful 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 book he's like does a lot of airbrushing but he does a great picture of Guy of Hank Williams dead in the back of his limousine wearing a nudie suit you know and he died of amphetamine abuse and you know all those guys Mm -hmm. took millions of pennies and uppers and stuff like that ostensibly to stay skinny and to get in those nudie suits I think you know but uh, that type of imagery of of um high lonesome you know yeah and, and you know the scene in the top in the on the top of the mountain in Mulholland Drive where they have a rodeo and the cowboy says that's the girl that, yeah, type, yeah. that type of high lonesome notion of, of country music and bluegrass and stuff like that that's kind of what I wanted to infuse in the song so the song itself is relatively simple in its structure musically but for me I just can't leave well enough alone so even though the stand, first stanza is kind of you know is good then it devolves into Burt Lancaster swimming through July from pool to pool but then one of the swimming pools I think you know I was going to use the word cement pond as opposed to swimming pools because yeah. I had to get in my Beverly Hillbillies you know thing and then you know it's a f- and there's like a Willie Dixon line in there uh, from Manish Boy and then instead of then I had to go into Smetana Bartered Bride so, I mean I just start going off tangentially you know so it's just where it takes you yeah it just becomes it's you know it's it's what if he wound up like i know he's swimming through connecticut but what if he wound up swimming from connecticut to beverly hills and wound up in jed clampett swimming pool you know listening at pond you know and stuff like that and miss jane and you know miss jane was there and stuff like it's just like it's to me, that type of pastiche and stuff like that is is interesting, and it's it's the rub. It's taking you know something which you're not expecting and rubbing it against something which which is totally different, you know. And that's that's why I I like you know how Brian De Palma uses music, and that's kind of how I I like. Um, but I guess that's just how I grew up, you know, and. Uh, it, it wasn't people listen to my music now or listen to my records now have a challenge because there's no real continuity from song to song you skip from a funk song to a glam song to a country song but for me growing up in Toronto radio stations Chum AM that's what it was you know you would listen to a Motown song and then they'd play like Charlie Rich doing Behind Closed Doors and then you'd listen to like a rock song and then they'd play a reggae song before Bob Marley like like, you know, David Ansel Collins, you just, music was less compartmentalized back then. There weren't music tribes back then. It was just mm-hmm. like everything was available all the time, you know? Yeah, I wonder if, too, Toronto just had the advantage of being outside the mainstream in terms of production. Like Detroit would be playing Motown. I guess so. I mean, Chicago I'm, I'm, with Soul and all that stuff. You know, AM radio, there was no FM radio, so AM radio, like, BBC One kind of had to play everything. BBC One, kids that grew up in Britain had to listen to vaudeville and had to listen to rock music, they had to listen to ABBA, they listened to everything all at once because, or they listened to pirate radio and stuff like that. Right, The chum chart was just full of everything, you know, and, and, um... Yeah, it wasn't Top 40 as people know Top 40. No, it's like, like, 
Tammy, you know, what's Lynn Anderson Rose Garden? That was like oh, number yeah. one on Chum. That was number one on the on the pop chart. You know, it's like, and and heaven forbid there be a steel guitar in like a rock song now. Like the 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 guitar solo in Never Been to Spain by Three Dog Night is a steel guitar with Three Dog Night who were a rock band. Yeah. You know, you could do you could do stuff which. I think it, it, you know, in the late 70s when they when radio really started making money and there was FM radio and they had the Abrams Burkhart report which came out and said you have to start, you know, different forms of radio and album oriented rock and right. it wasn't just, it's when they, when they took, when FM radio became more money driven, you know, and stuff like that. Because remember when, Key 107 came on, they would play a whole slide of a record, and it was Ronnie Schwartz or whatever. It was just like, you know, it was like, great, this is like listening to my record player, you know, and just at a certain point, you know, the game was over in 77, 78, and they said, listen, just, you know, it's going to be all formats and stuff like that. And they wiped out country music off all the pop charts, and then country music had to make their own pop music, which wasn't like the new Nashville and stuff like that, which wasn't really interesting. Like Lee Greenwood was like the face of new country back then. Mm-hmm. It's like now he's singing whatever that stupid song is for Donald Trump. You know? Oh, that's right. I was thinking about Den- John Denver and how he kind of straddles it because there's that hazy quality to a lot of the lyrics, but the, they're still so sad and mournful and clear-eyed that it doesn't sound like "Take Me Home, Country Roads" is an upbeat song about a downbeat concept, and then Soderbergh goes and reclaims it at the end of Logan Lucky and has a kid sing it and it's just like yep that's that's what this should be this should be innocent again um what 10 years after longer after his death oh yeah sure yeah longer it's just you find the way in for a new generation or at least you show a new generation finding their way in it's it's something that I'm again I'm completely underqualified to discuss musical theory but the stuff that fascinates me is the way that things come in waves and never really go away that there's something scratching around inside a, a genre that just needs to come back out again here and there, like the resurgence of 70s soul, partially because of uh, Tarantino using it mm-hmm. so heavily in the 90s, and then the resurgence of Motown that followed that with the the Funk Brothers being rediscovered in 2001 and or two, and, and just rolling and rolling and rolling. The songs, that's like the big chill in the 80s started it maybe even, but those are... Like that's white boy blues now. That that an entire I don't even know if I'm articulating this right. It wasn't the boomers. It was the the post boomers. Gen X got exposed to it because the boomers were listening to it, and now it's been embraced and reinterpreted a million different ways to be uh, signifiers. The way Drew Goddard uses um, a different and alternate '60s soul soundtrack from Tarantino's choices in Bad Times at the Royale, where he basically has a character who exists only to be a singer and to sing mostly a cappella versions of these of these incredible soul songs and it doesn't serve any other purpose in the film except to be pure pleasure but drew goddard is my age he's you know in his late 40s early maybe not even that he might be in his early 40s he might be younger than me but he's that guy who has embraced it so wholeheartedly the stuff that was written before he was born and he's bringing it back now and it's in a different format because it's something that he loves um, maybe without having any sense of where it came from he just knows it's always been there 
I think that's what pop music or pop culture is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's in, first of all, everyone loves sad music. <laughs> sad music, like, is like, is always a hit. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm going to slash my wrist and stuff like that, but it has to have that notion of melancholy, a bit of melancholy, a bit of regret, a bit of, you know, people relate to it automatically. Like, even Justin Bieber singing Sorry is like, that's like mm-hmm. a, such a simple, beautiful song. But it's like, sorry, it's about, it's, it's and in his voice, you can see. But, you know, I think that re, revisiting of pop culture happened, started, started in the 50s and in the 60s. And, you know, the Beatles grew up listening to vaudeville, not vaudeville, but musical music. Like, yeah, and musical stuff. You yeah. know, and David Bowie grew up listening to Anthony Newley and stuff like that. And, you know, Elton John grew up listening to... Um, Jim Reeves and stuff like that and you take that and you put your print on it and it becomes Elton John and someone listen to Elton John like you know and then it becomes maybe Shawn Mendes and stuff like that there's all a repurposing of pop culture that's I think that's what it's supposed to be and like the Andy Warhol using you know Campbell's mm-hmm. Suit Camp that's just that's what that's the best part of pop culture that somewhere you say I don't twig somewhere I don't remember that maybe my parents listened to something that was like that. That kind of makes me feel a sense of wholeness, but it's got this type of thing that I can relate to on it, you know? Yeah. And, and... You're just reconnecting to some other part. Yeah, and I want to be a part of it. So, you know, Douglas Sirk or... I mean, the song Imitation of Life is bizarre song, man. It's like... It's... It's... If you think about that song and it was a big hit it's like I can't I can't believe people walking around like madman type offices singing Imitation of Life but they probably were because it feels like the movie was a big hit and the song was a big hit and it's like it's a weirdo song you know (laughs) yeah that type of subterfuge is like that's what good pop art's all about you know yeah uh, and I've been trying to figure out how to tie this to the swimmer, but I guess it's still kind of free-floating in the same way that the swimmer is, and we're supposed to be ostensibly, we're supposed to be talking about a movie, but it's, again, j- jumping off point. You can take it anywhere you want. But the idea of what Lancaster's character is doing in that film is that he is trying, he's trying to reconnect to him, his younger self, but he is also living an entire life in the course of the day, the allegory of, you know, starting off youthful and, and hale and hearty and then breaking down over time to the point that by the end of the film he's something else. He's not someone else. He's still himself, but he is a different thing. Um, broken and, and, and hobbled at the at the shuttered house that used to be his. Yeah, so is he swimming home? Yes, he's swimming to his metaphorical home. He's swimming to his real home. Yeah. You know, the notion of swimming, just being on the surface or diving under... All those things, the notion of, you know, well, Iliad, or I was like traveling from place to place to place and meeting certain people. So it's like, is that like Canterbury Tales? Is like where you know you meet people along the way that in who you are, who knew who you were before, mm-hmm. and it's great because there's suggestions as to what he is. But the punchline is at the end of the movie. You don't really know what the whole thing's about. Yeah. You know, it's just he's the just guy nothing. swimming. He's yeah. just yeah, he's reduced to. Nothing. Really. It's a weird concept. It's like, yeah. But, well, it's like an album. But that, that was what I was getting to. Like, it is, 
you can separate it into chapters. You can separate right. it. Some people have referred to it as a uh, a literary film, and that it's like a series of short stories. But it's also a concept album, in a weird way. But I didn't know that it, people thought it was weird when it came out. Oh know? yeah, I mean, to people didn't know what to do with it. It just, I mean, Burt Lancaster's a big star, you know, and he looks handsome in it, you know, mm-hmm. and they're nice people having nice parties, you know, in Connecticut or wherever it is or upstate, you know, it's just outside New York City. It looks great and um it's just a guy swimming from pool to pool when i was whatever a teenager watching and stuff like that and uh but the fact that there's a underbelly to it is relevant and the fact that it's swimming is as opposed to walking you know you know and and it's so lonely it's such a lonely thing such a swimming's lonely because it's you do it on your own usually even you do with someone else but I think that the notion of swimming um, has been explored a lot in pop music too, like on Japan records. And I just think it's it's such a beautiful metaphor for his his life and for people's lives. And, and as a chapter, it's great, you know, going from pool to pool. You know? Yeah, I um, I saw it when I was a teenager as well uh, on videotape in a. Uh, media arts class in high school which was a really weird place to see it um it was on a little you know a 20 inch television set on a cart like the olden days and i don't think most of us got it i mean you're what 17 at the at the most maybe even 16 you're not old enough to understand the regret and the melancholy you can get what's going on but it wasn't until much much later that i revisited it and understood it, I think, or started to. And I'd read the short story in between. It's like, oh, this is that Burt Lancaster movie mm-hmm. that I vaguely remember for his incredibly strange enunciation. You know, that, that thing that only Burt Lancaster ever did that worked so well, where he would just... He, he was the guy who, in the 60s and 70s, was doing Golden Age enunciation. And he made it work. Every time, you know, pool to pool, they fall in the river, <laughs> all the way to our house. That, that, like, nobody talks like that. Uh, certainly no one else in the film does. And it's fascinating because he feels like he's arrived out of decades of stasis. Like he's been frozen in a swimming pool, which finally thawed, and now he's out running around. And, and I mean, he might as well have been. We don't know where he was, but we know he wasn't there with these people. And it's just so strange, and it's such a, a remarkable choice for, for Frank and Eleanor Perry to, to cast him, but also for him to think he could do it and understand how to be other in this film where he's supposed to be like he's representing the masculine ideal when we first see him he's uh, incredibly fit he looks great he's happy he's bright and shiny and and he's conquered the world as far as we know and then we very quickly find out that's simply not true yeah well in the context of people's meeting people he's interchanged with you think he's like mr successful like you know happy go lucky guy you know mm-hmm. with picking up chicks or these chicks that he intimated that he slept with and stuff like that but how how old was he when he did that he was like mid 40s yeah 48 maybe i should yeah he's in great shape check this right now because i should well the man was what he was trained as an acrobat and a gymnast he's it's the kind of the kind of physicality you, you never really lose, as, as I understand it, as long as you don't just completely collapse into uh, alcoholism. He uh, he was a magnificent specimen, born in 1913. Hmm. Holy cow! So he was already wait, that can't be right. Since the movie was 68. Yeah, 
So he was 55? Hmm. Okay. Um, good for him. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah. It, it works for the character, if he's older, because he's he's been absent from things. But, uh... Yeah, 1968. I'm just... I'm doing the math, and it's... That's kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um... So, I mean, that enunciation... Yeah. He doesn't sound like anything. He sounds. No. <laughs> he sounds like he traveled out of the radio. It's it's remarkable, and he he, like, he never gave it up. But it suits the character in in the swimmer even even more to isolate him. I think to uh, to separate him out from everybody else. They've well, all moved on and sound more modern. What 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 was that Fellini film? Is it was that? What, what, oh, the leopard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, Giuseppe Lampedusa. Mm-hmm. No, but what wasn't he in? Uh, that movie with Fellini's wife it's not uh, I forget what it is where he was they were in a circus together and oh um was that him or someone else oh I think uh we were thinking about Visconti directing The Leopard and La Strada is the film La Strada which is Anthony Quinn oh Anthony Quinn okay right so yeah but it all does sort of mix together in a weird way there's a there's a like a, a physicality that that carries over the strong man versus the the trapeze artist. Yeah, I just wouldn't think of Anthony Quinn being cast in that film, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's just I I, I didn't. You, it's just uh, the American actors being in Italian films. I, I mean, I guess was it because they wanted to be in art films or were they looking for work like Victor Mature like and stuff like that were they looking for yeah. work you know and I think it was a good way to have a vacation yeah maybe you know to get to spend a couple of months or a year doing a run of European films and then come back with the art house credits as well everybody benefited it's probably easier to get movies made with American talent then than it is maybe less so now but yeah and people wanted to work with these directors who refused to come over to America Mm-hmm. I think that was part of it. And certainly Lancaster, by the time he made The Leopard, that was, what, 63? He was established, he was older, he was ready for something. You know, I don't know, like, did these guys read those books, or did they, were they trying to be more progressive and stuff like that? I mean, I, get, I don't really care how they can do it. I think it's just amazing that they did, and if they gave more exposure to... A book like The Leopard, or gave more exposure to a Fellini film, you know, in the late sixties. I think that's all—it's all good for me, you know. Yeah. Like, and uh, so you know, I mean, I, there's some, you know, Jack Nicholson and the Passenger. You know, yeah. you know, it was like, you know, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, I could—it could have been anybody. It could it didn't have to be Jack Nicholson and stuff like that, but. But Nicholson was was at a point in his career where he could get that movie made by saying yes. Yeah, you're right too. Yeah. You know, so. Um, but uh, I, you know, the, I was thinking about what you said about music being regenerated, and I think that for pop music, a lot of it had to do with um, with Shauna Na playing Shauna. The whole concept of Shauna Na being a band that was reworking hits from the '50s, and they did it in costume and stuff like that. Yeah. And their big exposure was at Woodstock and right, stuff yeah. like that. So that whole reworking of thing became acceptable within pop music since at that point you know um uh, and uh i think i think that 
I think funk music is really an underappreciated genre, even though everyone loves it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an underappreciated genre because it's so closely associated with disco, you know? Mm-hmm. So, who else does? It was Paul Thomas Anderson uses fucking great music, you know? Yeah. Just unbelievable music. And, and, and he's he's probably your age. He's probably a generation younger than me. He's so, a little you know, but the, knowledge really of, the knowledge of music and the use of music for cinematic purposes is great because it is respectful of the music. I, you know, the problem with some music too now is that The Simpsons is, has made a lot of music a punchline. Yeah. It's made saxophone a punchline, stuff like that. And that's, you know, I'm it's like, okay, that's, that's cool. But it does, has kind of compromised some things, you know? And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't. I never saw disco music as a punchline. I mean, I still get sh- shivers seeing John Travolta walking down the street to Stay Alive, and all the music on Saturday Night Fever is amazing. All of it, you know. I never wanted to burn my disco records. I just thought that was a reaction <laughs> to a reaction, yeah. you know. And and uh, more power to Bill Veck, you know. And, and uh, but I just think that um, people hip-hop music is such a strong cultural movement and has been for so long that that it's kind of I think the African-American music that influenced hip-hop music as the initial samples has kind of gotten because hip-hop is so stripped down now it's just like you know if you listen to Drake music it's just like beats and maybe some type of synthesizer thing which may have been 80s or 90s based but you know the the hip-hop music was originally sampling funk records you know funky drum and all that stuff and that's mm-hmm. just kind of gotten lost now i think that funk music is 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 probably i mean it's, it's because i'm i love funk music so much and it's something i'd love to do um is a genre which probably this uh one that could be could be I mean it's it's hard to do is you have to kind of make it authentic sound you can't just be a tourist you know you can maybe be a tourist with country, country music a bit it's a bit easier mm-hmm. than being a tourist with funk music because funk music requires a different set of skills playing as well and a different writing skills and stuff like that but I'd love to do funk music the way David Bowie did funk music in the mid mid 70s because he made it sound authentic but he put this European sensibility on top of it and yeah. uh, well, I just he, think that's something that hasn't been done for ages yeah know? he embraced it he didn't treat it as a novelty or as a as kitsch right that's the thing that goes wrong most which, of the which, which but we're talking 40 years ago so you could because it was so close to you you know mm-hmm. it was so close to you heard it everywhere it was now if you know, I um, the last record I did a funk song, and it was and the actual track was recorded in 1977, 76, and I and people were amazed because it's me singing in 1977, 76, and I just kind of updated it, remixed it, and stuff like that. Hmm. But it was so much closer than it is now. You know, trying to listen or find, and I'm not talking about the Dat King or the guys from Brooklyn who do. You know, even Mark, like like Bruno Mars, is right. like is like. I mean, 
it's not real funk music to me. I, and I'll probably get killed for that. It's just like um, Bruno Mars is is just like cartoon funk music, and it's it's a it's part of an extension of the the punchline notion of how people treat music. It's like uh, funk music is the muscle of most pop music, and because it's an extension of blues and and uh, the the riffs that funk music is is based on whether it's Sly Stone or whether it's the Ohio Players are blues riffs and um, with polyrhythmic stuff that you know James Brown added to it and uh, it it uh, it's the muscle that made to me hip hop music you know mm-hmm. um, as a genre and and it's gotten lost and and I would love to do funk music if it could sound authentic. I'd love to do R&B music if it sounded really authentic because I love that type of, once again, the the juxtaposition, the pastiche of, of doing something which sounds like country or something that sounds like funk, but putting my own kind of cinematic perspective on it, you know? Yeah. How do you do that? I, I don't know. I mean, I I've been researching who to play with and who to get to do it. Because, because I have a fundamental understanding of country music. I grew up with it. I, I listen to it all the time. I did the same thing with funk music, but funk music, it's so easily uh, um, disrespected, you know? And, and Africa, American music of any kind it, you, it's just it's a very tr- tricky slope you have to be very respectful you have to not seem like you're a tourist you know and you have to be able to do it justice or you shouldn't be doing it you know it's just like there's songs that I would never cover I would never cover Train in Vain I would never cover Won't Get Fooled Again it's like well, who needs to cover those types of things who needs to do a funk song unless you're going to make it better than than something else you know so being a musical tourist is not a it's not a good thing, I don't think you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's great to get noticed, I think, but if you don't have anything to say, you're just sort of borrowing things. Yeah, it's it's magpie stuff. Like it's yeah, just... absolutely. You know, it's like if you have if you if like you can't just say, well, I did a funk song and just I wrote my own kind of arcane lyrics on it. That's bullshit too. You have to integrate your words with your music. And the music has to have some type of enhanced meaning as well, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, I slapped my lyrics on a George Jones song, you know? I mean, that's, that's not interesting, you know? It's, I'm, now I kind of wonder what Guy Madden would do with that. Like that, that sort of thing. It's so completely alien to his, to his milieu, to his aesthetic, the idea of funk, where it's what we were discussing earlier about the repression versus the liberation. Like all of all of his stuff is out in the open, and funk is the same way. So I feel like there might be a, a a meeting point somehow, but he's so completely the wrong person. But that's what would be interesting. At the and same those, time, yeah. The um, you know, he, I like I said, we sent him 70, 65, 70 songs, and. Um, we went through different choices of songs and he picked he always picked slower songs because i think that worked better with his aesthetic mm-hmm. and 
and two of the songs were very Douglas Sirk type songs. The, the what they eventually chose was a deconstructed version of Accidents, which I think played better to what Evan and Galen were looking for, but because it wasn't immediately apparent, I said, well, you know, there's a Disney version of this song, like 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 the end of uh, Maleficent, where like Lana Del Rey is singing um, right. in a Star, or whatever it is. And uh, there's also a bluegrass version of it, and I think if you're going to pick this song, I want you to do, use all three versions, you know, which which was different for them because I they it was easy to access deconstructed version because that's how they kind of make their movies and stuff like that. So I think that that um, now that they trust me, and I think hopefully we'll work together again. Now that they trust me, then if I said, well, let's kind of look at this song, and it may not be what you guys generally work with, but I think it will work cinematically because of the source material in in what I'm saying and stuff like that. So, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think when we work together again, which we will, um, I won't feel as super intimidated. I mean, I'm still super intimidated. I'm intimidated because I have such an incredible knowledge of music too, you know. Um, and and uh, when the movie first was shown in Winnipeg, um, I played uh, a set after before the movie was shown, like five or six songs, and 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 uh, Galen and Emma wrote me really nice letters afterwards and they're sitting there with their dad who's probably a few years older than me said yeah it really sounds like talk talk or really sounds like you know we didn't really know your music until we actually saw you play it live and so that's good because that gave them a different perspective on what I was doing you know and now that they know me a bit more that gave them a real perspective and we spend so much time talking about records and music and stuff like that I think they're they are you know um really uh, really more expansive than how they would pr- approach making another short with me you know I'd like to do that I'd like, but I'd like to do that with I mean I'd love to work with Xavier Dolan too but he's like super busy but I want to work with him like five years ago right. because I thought of all the people in the world he would understand what I was doing you know and um, with the posters on the wall and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to work with Francois Girard because I saw his version of uh, Parsifal in in New York, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's really quite um, reserved. Mm. But uh, I mean, I, I'm not like a huge fan of Red Violin or anything. But the, his live stage in a Parsifal was so beautiful. And uh, I, I mean, I guess I'm just a sucker for insinuation, which I think a lot of access was insinuation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I made a video for the new record, which is me singing, which is absolutely contrary to that. So it's just, but, you know, I think that uh, any type of music or film or art which has that layer underneath it which makes you think that there's something else is going on is is really the most interesting type of thing and I'll take it back to when I was in high school too they I had a great English I mean I, I was really kind of outcast in high school I wasn't I didn't fit in with anybody and I wasn't like you know hugely popular <laughs> but uh, 
there was always one teacher, I think, for most people that may have helped them along. So I had this one teacher in grade 11 who uh, was an English teacher, and, and he kind of didn't pay any attention to the syllabus. What he did was he took two books and one movie, and that's what we did that year. So he spent from September to December, we spent reading Great Gatsby word by word. Okay. And he explained every single undercurrent to what was in the book and, you know, the whole notion of that, those eyes for T.J. Eckelberg, that like, by the he explained everything. And, it were, and to me, that's how art should be. That's how, that's how my mind works. Like, maybe other people don't see it, but that's why it takes me like three years to read a hundred page book. It's because I go back and try and figure out what every single word means, you know, and What's funny, the movie that he showed me, which I still don't understand why he did, was Lady in a Cage. Um, the Olivia to Helen. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's just a weird, but it was mel- melodramatic. And and, uh, um, and did he do a deep dive there as well? Yeah, he did. But I don't remember it as much as, like, he did the deep dive on Great Gatsby. He did one on Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. And he and he did, and we spent, like, maybe a month on Lady in the Cage, and we watched it over and over again. And I think it was um, obviously the the obvious um, metaphors, you know, being in a cage and being disabled and all that stuff, those two thugs and stuff like that. But it didn't it didn't resonate with me as much as uh, Catcher in the Rye and uh, Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And they, you know what? It, it bugs me too. They've never made a good movie of. I don't know if you're going to agree with me. I don't think they've ever made a good. F. Scott Fitzgerald movie, you know. Uh, uh, the last I can was, well, you know. No, not really. I mean, I think the the biggest problem with that is, with, with adapting his stuff, is that the language is so important. And as soon as you get away from narration, or as soon as you turn it into narration, as soon as you get away from the prose, you just, you lose so much. You you know, like the way Baz Luhrmann approached The Great Gatsby, which was to stage all the parties and not inform us that they're hollow. Because you... Uh, it's the problem with it's what Kubrick said about war movies you know there's no such thing or Truffaut maybe there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because to dramatize it you have to show it and it's exciting Um, and if you dwell on the horrors then you have a different aspect of it but you still have visual spectacle and with with Fitzgerald all of his stuff is about how the trappings of, of money and power don't bring you happiness but you make the movie and it's all gold it's all shiny um I think Scorsese came closest at the end of The Aviator with his Howard Hughes movie, um, which only works because now DiCaprio has played Gatsby. And so you have this echo of, of where he will eventually end up, just this this empty shell that he always was. But Howard Hughes sort of recedes into himself in a way that... Or rather, DiCaprio's Howard Hughes recedes into himself in a way that DiCaprio's Gatsby doesn't, because Gatsby's all about the veneer. And he never abandons it in the film because that's not what the story is. Uh, we're still watching it through the perspective of someone else. Do you think that because Howard Hughes is a more compromised character in real life and also probably in, in, that we know of? And Jay Gatsby's like, you don't have a real version of Jay Gatsby. Yeah, he's always know? an empty suit or he's always his own suit. Yeah. Positioning himself as, as successful even when he's just trying to recapture something that he's lost. Yeah, Aviator is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, those two films are in conversation in a really weird way that I don't think either of them is aware of. I mean, certainly The Aviator's not. It predates Gatsby by ten years, but it's fascinating to watch them now and see that 
DiCaprio still isn't getting older. <laughs> he's just he's getting thicker, but he's not weathering in any detectable way. Yeah, I think everyone gets thicker. You put on this type of thing in your in your rib cage. Middle age husk. Yeah. 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 Barrel chested. You know what? You know what? Another movie that I mean, I love Scorsese. And uh, speaking of someone who uses needle drops and, and the perfect pop song. So, well, all that stuff in Shutter Island where Max von Sydow's listening to all, I mean that's oh yeah oh my god that movie just kills me and the, you know the, it makes me I mean I, I tear up when I when I get really really um, uh, emphatic about stuff but I think watching um, uh, Michelle Williams and burn that scene where yeah. she burns it's like fuck that's amazing so amazing it's so weird yeah it's so fucked up it's so beautiful and the music is so beautiful and the music at the end of Saturday Live which is a mashup of um, I don't know who it is it's Sarah Vaughn or Dinah Washington with uh, with that guy Max um, uh, I don't know it's just a beautiful of this island earth you know mm -hmm. oh my god it's just breathtaking I mean that's art I mean that's uh, like when you see art like that it, it makes you want to kind of recede into yourself and never do anything again because you can never <laughs> approach anything and make it that perfect but it also kind of inspires you to try and do something but um, yeah so that's it's that intersection again isn't it it's because the visual power is under is underlined and enhanced by the music and the the choices you know it's because we're I guess we're watching the emotion on von Sido's face when the music plays so we link the two instantly and, and primally that's just amazing amazing stuff you know you know I mean I mean it's it's Scorsese does it a lot you know um oh uh Ray Liotta and all the Eric Clapton stuff like that and like at the end or yeah. you know the coke field frenzy you know and stuff like that but mm. I mean, I get. I mean, that's why pop music and film serve each other so perfectly. But I think film is always going to be the leader in that that conversation, and that's how it should be. I think you know, and that's why I think I'd rather take a song and have a song used as the basis for a film as opposed to scoring something. You know, I could score something, and it would be more along the lines of what the film was looking for but I don't like the idea of making videos because I think they're just I don't think they have any permanence you know mm. I think that what happens is the director starts serving the song and that kind of collaboration or that the nexus of where the music and film meet is the most interesting um uh, connection ever because it's fraught with this type of tension that isn't easily resolved within the art itself. It's only resolved when you in your through your interpretation of it. You know that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, so many music videos settle for illustrating, and they're telling a story, but they're telling a story that the song is already telling. So you don't have the expression of something new that that as accidents does where it ties in and and tangles itself up with the music as we previously understood it and it becomes a, a new original thing yeah I mean I'm trying to think of videos that have that type of resonance that 
whether they were in the seven, the eighties or nineties. I just can't think of any videos that. I mean, there's certain. I mean, certain, I mean, I grew up watching videos and I made videos and there's lots of videos I loved at the time. But there's there's no video that ever stays with you the way a film does. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it just it just doesn't exist. I know. Maybe Michael Jackson tried to do it with a thriller. It just sounds just a goofy thing. You know? it's just it's just goofy, you know, based on his love of horror movies. But, yeah, which uh, he immediately disowned. That yeah. always fascinated me that he felt that he had to do that. At the height of his, you know, he thriller was bigger than anything that had ever happened, and he still felt that he had to. Well, due to my, you know, I, I reject the belief in the occult. That little note that they oh the right, yeah. Well, I think that he just tried to cover his ass. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nothing in it that is particularly blasphemous or disturbing. It's a werewolf movie. It's very silly. And then there's zombies and they dance. It's not, a, you know, an abomination in the eyes of God or anything. It's just people goofing around with horror movie imagery. And yeah. And he wanted, he was a big horror movie fan. And like, like was the, yeah, he wanted to be a baker, werewolf. Baker, like mask guys. Yeah. But he loved all that type of stuff, you know, but... John just certainly got it. I just, I just, you know, I just don't think there's any videos which stand the test of time. Mm. Maybe Wicked Game, the Chris Isaac one, which is, but it's so simple, you know, it's just, and it, it doesn't only look good because Chris Isaac and Helena Christensen, it doesn't look good if it was like, you know, me and Roseanne Barr. So mm-hmm. I just think that, uh, and it has that type of rub too, I think, the, because the song is so magnificently sad and the video is so magnificently who shot her bricks it's very beautiful yeah. you know so it's yeah. the juxtaposition it's the, the juxtaposition the counterbalance yeah. it's always the juxtaposition you know I'm thinking I think they used Bowie they used Bowie for Lost Highway I think some music in Lost Highway but I don't know if he used the music really effectively or not. I mean, the it was Tim Machine, wasn't it? It was one of his side projects. Maybe, yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking about um, Justin. Justin Thoreau was so good in in Mulholland Drive. I thought he was really good. That's why. That's I didn't realize he was the same person like he's now. Yeah. Because I thought he was super cool and super, super unaffected as an actor then, and. Uh, um, but that scene where they use that song Every Little Star that's mind blowing too you know I'd never heard of that song before and uh, it's it's so beautiful because I think that's what the I don't remember that's what the girls are singing on stage while he's watching it and he's got he's talking to someone behind him and they're singing this thing on a sound stage but yeah. you know you know I, I know that that you know, my other a twenty, I have a thirty-one-year-old son, a twenty-seven-year-old son. My twenty-seven-year-old son is like huge cinema head, and he he loves Mulholland Drive, but he wants to know what it's about, and and maybe that's generational. I'm going, like, who cares what it's about? It looks great, you know. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, sometimes I don't, I don't need like I like you know, Lost Highway was like you know, I don't know, it was like a little bit goofy I think the Robert Blake played it like you know he's eating the scenery but uh, Mulholland Drive seemed to have a softness and a, a kind of subtlety that that 
you know, Wild at Heart certainly didn't have, you know, Wild at Heart was just, okay, it's a great conversation with Guy Madden and uh, Galen and Evan, and um, uh, we were talking about, I was talking to them about Laura Dern, they didn't say anything, this is all me talking with Laura Dern, I said, doesn't Laura Dern look like Lucy, or, 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 or maybe it's um, Charlie Brown's sister, where they get really upset and they make that mouth that looks yeah. like an infinity sign. Yeah. Doesn't Laura Dern do that in every single movie? Is that part of her contract, contract that she gets to make that crying, screaming face, like, oh, sailor, and her She'll mouth goes into an infinity sign? She'll you know? do it for Lynch, absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah? that's what it's like, on. Well, she did it for... for whatever it is, Big Little Lies, whatever it is, it's just like part of her contractual obliga- obligation to make her mouth look like that, you know? Yeah. I wonder if maybe that was it, right? Um, Valet knows she can do it, so he wants her to do it for him. I guess the so. Idea that this but it's, is like, it's, like, it's not a very attractive face, you know? Yeah. Which is why, again, it's so special, because most actors won't consciously make themselves But it does look like Lucy from, from Charlie Brown. Or... or <laughs> Sally? Sally. One of them makes that face. They put their head up and their mouth goes the in that shape. Yeah. yeah, it's like, ah, oh, Linus or whatever. Or Schroeder. It's like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's Laura Dern. Crazy. She's very nice. I have, I'm sure I have you, met I, her and she's not done the infinity face. No. I've asked her about her father, Bruce. We were talking about the... the what, they saved Hitler's brain and then the, the guy with two heads with Bruce... Wasn't that Bruce Dern? Rosie Greer and Bruce Dern was that Dern? it? They no, sewed Dern Ru- wasn't the he might have been the doctor the doctor yeah and they sewed know. Rosie Greer's head onto someone else's shoulder yeah. and that became like the two headed guy the white southern bit, bit. Yeah. Uh, the incredible two headed transplant I think oh yeah, that was yeah, a bad that was great it's the defiant ones but one body you don't need handcuffs that's awesome yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> they say uh, your brain. this is yeah. where we end up this is where we always end up in the weird exploitation points. It's where any concept, if you take it far enough, will just end up being some weird B-movie that's already been made. It's, again, it's it's recursive, right? It's pop-eating itself. We're feeding on generations. Hmm. I don't know what next... I don't know what happens next, but it's going to be weird. Well, I mean, people are, people are inured to seeing violent happenings and... Like even in the space of what six years, the Purge movies have come back to the present day. the uh, The original idea was that it was set in the weird future of the twenty twenties or something, in two thousand and thirteen, whenever they made the first one. And now, the newest one, which just came out on disc, came out this summer, is the first Purge because it's well, it's next week, it's tomorrow, it's it it's always been about the the idea that you know dystopian science fiction comments on the present day. They basically just stopped pretending it's dystopian science fiction saying no it's happening we're, we're living it this is where we are now it's become just another action movie set in the in the present in the here and now well yeah, I think um, maybe things will become smaller I don't know things are so large it's like over the top and and so fantastic maybe life will get smaller people maybe film will get smaller maybe it'll be more introspective I don't know it's like everyone's kind of living in five second sound bites and stuff like that so 
Um, I mean, I, I know that my interests are only in doing things as they pertain to to make sense to me and trying to retain that sense of authenticity because what I do is is who I am, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and not trying to be someone who I'm not and not try and be... I mean, it, like, it's, it's one thing to be, to adopt this personality, which I've had since I was 12 years old, as Ensign Braddock, and it made it easier based on trying to, to keep myself separate from my previous music career and my previous business career. But I think that, um, that it's, it's important to, and I know this is overused all the time, be mindful, but it's important to know where you are, especially in my age, it's important to know where you are in this world. It's important to be able to know where you are in this world so that you can do something which which is leaving the world, doesn't matter if it's smaller or it's a better place than when you entered it, you know? It's like, you know, do something which is good for someone else. Do something which is good for the future of the earth and you know whether it's ecological or environmental or artistically do something which makes the place better and maybe maybe big huge blockbuster films are giving people huge amounts of pleasure and maybe that's their way of doing something better for someone I don't know I mean I think that there if you're going to make an effort to make the world a better place and not because you're egocentric and not because you want your name attached to it but because you think that's your obligation as as being as being fortunate to ha be, be given life that you have to leave something that's that's of value that people will be able to to use or not use is important um uh um, without ego, though, certainly without ego, with just the sense that you left something which has some longevity as opposed to something which is, you know, here today and gone tomorrow. So, I, I can only, I can only try and do what I know how to do, and I can only try and make it as authentic as I possibly can be, but. Um, I mean, I think that everyone has to be able to answer with what they do, whether you answer for your journalism or whether you answer for your music or whether you answer answer for, you know, anything you, you, you do as your own. You have to be able to, to back it up, you know, and be and have some legitimacy in what you do. And hopefully it's for the right reasons, you know. Yeah, I mean, all we have is who we are. Right? I mean, the perspective that we bring to whatever it is we do. I, um, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm wasting my time sometimes, but that's still necessary to do the thing that I'm doing. To, you know, sit through Venom in order to write about Venom. You can't just phone it in. You have to have the experience, even if it's unsatisfying. Well, I, th I think that, that the, the, uh, you're, uh, you're, ability to educate people through your writing and you know tying venom 
back to some other allegory or other metaphor within writing so that it's like even if it's just one word someone understands that there's some something happened before that that kind of allowed venom to happen right the historical precedent the artistic precedent something happened before that made play that funky music white boy a song to let it happen you know there's 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 lessons and people like are like it's hard to teach lessons now and and you know not that like i'm any great you know authority on things but i think that um if people listen to one of my songs and said hey that line's from a willie dixon song and then went to listen to willie dixon song then that's not a huge lesson but at least it's something you know and and uh i think that that it's it's important to it's important to feel like you're contributing um in a way which which will have some meaning to to that may outlive your own existence and stuff like that because we're talking about people like that we're talking yeah. about Lancaster we're talking about Douglas Eric we're talking about people that had a influence in our lives you know and um, and it's not just the movies it's the cinematographers and it's the set dressers and it's everybody it's the grips everyone on those movies had an influence in what made those movies as wonderful as they are you know yeah. and all of those people yeah. contributed you know so it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be like Visconti or, you know, Berlucci and stuff like that. You can always, you can always make something if, you can always make a contribution if you come at it from, I think, a sense of humility and a sense of, of generally wanting to make the world a better place, you know? Yeah. Leave the best pieces of yourself tied to whatever it is that inspired you. I like that. It's a good goal. My thanks to Ensign Broderick, whose new album Blood Crush is available physically and digitally from Six Shooter Records. You can find more information on that and on accidents at ensignbroderick.com. Thanks also to Emily Smart. She knows what she did. You can find Ensign on Twitter at Ensign Broderick, all one word, and you can find The Swimmer on Blu-ray and DVD in an unlikely special edition from Grindhouse Entertainment. It's also available for rental and purchase on YouTube and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.